My name is Mark McGuinness, and this is the 21st Century Creative, the podcast that helps you thrive as a creative professional amid the demands, the distractions, and the opportunities of the 21st century. Welcome to Episode 7. We're now deep into Season 2 of the show, but there's still plenty more to come. We're not at the end yet. A few years ago, I was at the 99U conference in New York City, where I was coaching delegates at the conference, and I had the pleasure of meeting Gabriela Pereira, a writer and the founder of DIY MFA, who's on a mission to empower writers to take control of their own education and professional development. Gabriella and I spent a very pleasant afternoon walking around Central Park and she told me all about her mission, which she's pursuing via her popular podcast, her website and her book, all called DIY MFA. That conversation stayed with me and when I started this podcast, I asked Gabriella to come on the show and share her ideas with you. So if you're like me and you think learning should be a lifelong process for a creative I think you'll find this a really inspiring conversation. Before we get to that, if you would like your work to be more widely known, or if you would like to have more influence in the world, then I have a question for you. Do you want to attract an audience or create a community? I'm asking... Because we hear the words audience and community a lot these days, and they're often used interchangeably, as if they were the same thing. But if you think about it, they're really quite different. An audience was originally a group of people who listened to a musical performance, or to a stage play, with the emphasis on hearing rather than watching. These days, audiences focus on watching as much as listening. In a movie theatre, at a rock concert or another kind of live show. It can also refer to the readers of a book or newspaper, or the viewers of a TV show, or listeners to a radio show or podcast, even though they aren't all assembled in the same room. A community, on the other hand, is a group of people who have more in common than the fact that they are paying attention to the same show. A local community is made up of people who live in the same place, Other communities can form around other common interests, such as people's profession, their religion, their sexuality, their hobbies and enthusiasms, or political causes. So why does this distinction matter to you as a creator? Because attracting an audience and creating a community are very different activities, in spite of their superficial similarities. Both involve attracting the attention of a large number of people and establishing a relationship with them. But there are some important differences. Attracting an audience is about creating something that will attract and hold people's attention by inspiring, entertaining, or educating them. The primary relationship is between you, the creator or performer, and the people in the audience. And this relationship is more fragile and fickle than the relationships in a community. Once the show is over, Once you cease to be entertaining, interesting or relevant, the audience will move on. Creating community is about connecting people and creating a space, whether real or virtual, to support their interactions and relationships. Here, the primary relationships are between members of the community. So it's not about you or your work, it's about them. In episode one of this season of the show, Tina Roth-Eisenberg, who has a real gift for creating community, said to me, a community is not a community until it organises itself. Talking about Creative Mornings, the free creative lecture series she established, she said, we're now at the point where we realise we couldn't stop it if we tried. Attracting an audience can be exciting, and it can also flatter your ego. With all those people looking at you, responding to what you do and say, and showering you with praise, it's easy to think it's all about you. 
Actually, it's all about them. You only earn their attention by capturing and expressing something about them or something that matters to them. It really isn't about you, but it can be hard to remember that sometimes. Community, on the other hand, brings support and encouragement in a way that an audience doesn't. Your community is there for you, in a way that your audience is not. But it's not all rosy on the community side of the fence, because where there's a community, there will be politics and conflict, and the challenge of resolving that conflict. So think carefully about what you really want. Having an audience can bring you a lot of benefits, and it can also create a lot of new problems for you. Creating a community sounds like a lovely idea, but it's a lot of hard work, and by definition, it will be bigger than you and beyond your control. Personally, I'm happy with an audience. I don't have the gift of the community builder. I'm satisfied if I can write poems and books that people want to read and make a podcast that people want to hear. I do consider my work, especially this show, as a contribution to a community. One of the best things about making it has been getting emails from listeners in Europe, the US, Asia, Africa, South America, telling me it's feeding into the conversations they have with their friends, their co-workers, their students and their peers. So by putting this show out there, I'm hoping to make a small contribution to lots of different creative communities. But I'm certainly not creating these communities, and they are certainly not mine. So, have a think about your ambitions for your work and the kind of difference you want to make in other people's lives. Do you like making media? Do you enjoy the spotlight? Do you have a big idea that you want people to hear? If so, then focus on finding and serving your audience. On the other hand, do you like connecting people? Would you rather be setting the stage than walking on it? Do you want to be part of something bigger than yourself? Do you want to be part of a cause where you achieve things together? Then you could well find your fulfillment as a community builder. If you're enjoying the 21st Century Creative, you may like to know there is more to this podcast than meets the ear. To help you succeed in your creative career or business, I've created an in-depth program, the 21st Century Creative Foundation Course. It covers the personal and professional skills you'll need to succeed as a creative professional in the 21st century. In other words, the stuff they probably didn't teach you at art school on your creative writing masters, or wherever else you learned your craft. Things like how to manage your time, how to communicate your ideas, how to handle difficult conversations, how to close a sale, how to deal with money, how to grow your network, and how to attract an audience for your work. Altogether, there are 26 lessons in the course, full of practical advice, plus a worksheet for each one to help you put the ideas into practice. And I'm giving you the entire course for free. In case you can't quite believe your ears, go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash free course and see for yourself. When you get there, you can sign up with just an email address and you'll get your first lesson right away. By the way, the course has already been taken by over 11,000 students. And on the sign-up page, you'll see lots of testimonials from other creatives whose lives and careers have been changed by the course. You can join them right now for free by going to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash free course. Gabriela Pereira is a writer and teacher who's on a mission to empower writers to take an entrepreneurial approach to their education and professional growth. 
Having earned her own MFA, which for those of us outside the US is a Master of Fine Arts degree, the main creative writing degree in the States, via the traditional academic route, Gabriella founded DIY MFA to make this kind of education available to writers without the time or money to invest in a degree programme. She teaches via her website, DIYMFA.com, her book, DIY MFA, and her popular podcast, DIY MFA Radio. This interview will obviously appeal to you if you're a writer, but even if you're not, Gabriella has a lot of valuable things to say about the mindset it takes to achieve in any creative profession. One of the big themes of the 21st Century Creative Podcast is that it's up to you and me to take responsibility for our own careers, for making things happen rather than waiting for opportunity to knock. And DIY MFA is a great example of doing this with your education and professional development. Listen to Gabriella and you'll hear how passionate she is about taking control of your learning process just as much as you do for other aspects of your career or business. So listen to Gabriella's approach to education and see what you can take from it and apply to your own development as a 21st century creative. Gabriella, what drew you to writing in the first place? So way back when I was in first grade, I went to this Montessori school in New York City, wonderful school, and I was in the library and I was kind of a little bit of a precocious, you know, one of those annoying little kids who always wants to like read ahead of her age level. And so I marched right up to the fifth grade bookshelf. This was an elementary school, so it ended in fifth grade. And I walked up to the fifth grade bookshelf and I pulled this book off the shelf, Lloyd Alexander's The Book of Three, and I grabbed it off the shelf. I still remember why, because there's a picture on the cover of this guy with a skull head and antlers. And I thought that was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. So I pulled it off the shelf and I started reading and I read the first page and then I read the first chapter. And then I started reading the next chapter. And then I had a full-on meltdown. Not for the reason you would expect, but because I realized that if I could read that book, then I could read any book in the library. Because I was reading a fifth grade book, and I was in first grade, so I could read any book in the library, which meant I could Mm -hmm. read any book in any library, which meant I could read any book in the world, and I would run out of things to read, and then I'd die because I'd be bored forever. And so I literally had this meltdown in the middle of the library and the librarian didn't know what to do with me. And she took me back to my classroom and told the teacher what happened. And the next day, the teacher arrived with an activity for us to do. And if you're familiar with Montessori uh curricula, the way it works is that you have like these little stations around the room and each station, there's like an activity that you do. And this particular station that the teacher introduced was not very fancy. It just had a tray with blank paper on it and another empty tray next to it. And then a canister filled with pencils. And the teacher explained that we were to take the paper from the tray that was full and write a story and then she would help us staple it together and bind it with a cover which was basically two pieces of construction paper and then we'd write our name on the cover and the title of our book and then we put it in the book corner and it would become part of the class library and we could read it to the class at story time this blew my mind because up until that point I didn't actually think that writing was something that people did I just thought those books sort of magically appeared from the book elves in the library or in the you know in our bookshelf at home and so that was the moment when I realized there are humans who write books and I can be one of them and so that was what opened up the whole idea of writing to me and from then on I just never stopped I was writing constantly until this very day. So there you have it. And what are your favorite forms of writing? Because I know you do more than one. So my favorite stuff to write, like a lot of the stuff I like to write stems from what I like to read. And I'm kind of a weirdo. So I like to read really weird stuff. (laughs) So I'm really big fan of reading like children's book, middle grade and YA. So I read a lot of that. And for a long time, that was mostly what I wrote. And I remember when I first started writing in earnest, like when I thought this wasn't just a hobby anymore. This was like something I was going to do. I was going to be a writer. It's back in 2007. 
I did a lot of, I tried to write like grown up fiction, but it always came out sounding like an 11 year old boy. So then I realized instead of trying to fight that impulse and that voice, I was just going to channel my inner 11 year old boy and write from that place. And that's what I started doing. And so then I ended up writing a lot of sort of tomboyish characters, like middle grade characters. Um, So that's what I started out writing in earnest. But I also really love writing about creativity, writing about the craft of writing. And I kind of like to break ideas down on paper. So I often work out problems that I'm trying to figure out by writing the problem and then writing the solution on the page. Like that's where I go when I need to figure stuff out. So it's kind of like everything I do is always, it always comes back to writing. That's sort of the part of my brain where I, that I use to sort out different questions. You know, the thing you're best known for is DIY MFA, which I think is a terrific brand. As soon as I saw it, I smiled. And But just for the benefit of listeners outside the United States who maybe MFA isn't particularly um, maybe wondering what it means, could you just explain what an MFA is? Absolutely. So when I started DIY MFA, I worried that people wouldn't know what the acronyms were. And so DIY is do it yourself. We all kind of know what that is because we watch like DIY TV shows. MFA uh, is Master of Fine Arts. And that's the degree that you get, at least in the United States, it's the degree you get if you want to like do a master's in creative writing. It's also a degree that you might get if you're doing any type of art. So you could get an MFA in painting or in sculpture and music, et cetera, theater. But specifically, I started DIY MFA with writers in mind, though I have been expanding the concept beyond the writing sphere in more recent days or weeks. Okay. So that's what the a normal MFA is. What, what prompted you to create a DIY version? So I always preface my answer to this question by saying that DIY MFA was in no way a reflexive response to having had a bad experience in an MFA program. So I went to an MFA program. I got an MFA in writing for children at the new school. And when I graduated, I was 100% convinced that I was going to go out, publish my children's book manuscript, write other children's books, and I was going to become a writer of middle grade fiction. And that was going to be my jam for ever. And Mm -hmm. I had no idea that this concept was cooking in my brain until I landed at literally graduation ceremony when this idea popped into my head. And I can tell you the exact moment. So picture, if you will, this rickety church in the West Village, and I'm sitting in this very uncomfortable pew sort of towards the back because the writing for children cohort was kind of, we were sort of a troublemaker cohort. So we'd like to hang out in the back Mm -hmm. rows and kind of be whispering and stuff. So we were back there and all of a sudden the light streams in through the stained glass. And I picked, and I'm imagining like the clouds parting overhead and angel choir singing and the literary gods whispering down, you are now a writer. And that totally didn't happen. And instead I got this crazy idea that just popped into my head randomly. And I started thinking, well, what if I could have done this myself? Like, what would it have looked like if I were to recreate this two-year experience as a do-it-yourself version, doing it Mm -hmm. by myself in my apartment? And so at the time, I had this teeny tiny blog that had 12 followers, one of whom was my mother. And I went home and did exactly what anyone who has a blog does when they have a question they need to work out, is first I wrote about it in my notebook and I you know, doodled a lot. And then I went to my blog and I wrote a question. I put a post up saying, hey, everyone out there who I don't know, if there was a do-it-yourself version of an MFA, would you do it? And I had only 12 followers at the time. So I expected that this would go out into the ether and no one would respond. And instead, I woke up to at least 20 some odd comments to that post and like another five or six emails in my inbox from people saying, oh my gosh, yes, I would totally do that. What would it look like? And so that was the beginning of the the concept was sort of getting that seed planted in my mind, thinking that it was something that there was a need for. But again, it wasn't a reflexive response to having had a bad experience. I had a wonderful experience, but the reason 
I created DIY MFA was for all those other many, many writers who can't afford to get an MFA or they have a family so they can't take time off to go back to school or they have a full-time job. And I often tell people that Gabriella back then was able to get an MFA because, you know, at the time, my husband and I, we didn't have any kids. My husband was working at a fancy law firm. We could afford for me to take time off from work for two years to go back yeah. to school and get an MFA. Now we have a three-year-old and a five-year-old and I run my business full-time and my husband has a full-time job. Like that would not work for us in the universe that we live in just a few years later. So Back then, I was able, I had the luxury of being able to go back to school, but now I would have to DIY my MFA. There's no way I would have been able to do it the traditional route. And those are the people that I created DIY MFA for. If we could plunge a little into the content of the course, which I know is reflected in the book that you've got, you, and you do it in several channels. You've got the book, you've got the course, you've got the podcast, you've covered all the bases. And you talk about the DIY MFA mindset. And I think this is really crucial, and not just for writers, because, I mean, you know, as I read through this, I thought, well, that applies to any creator. So maybe you could talk a little bit about what is the essence of the DIY MFA mindset? In DIY MFA, we have a few sort of fundamental principles. And one of the ones that is just so crucial, and I've hinted at it already, is this idea of iteration. And this is a concept that I actually was inspired, um, it was inspired by tech startup companies and the way that tech companies will put out beta versions of their software and their product, and they learn by getting feedback on that. When you use iteration, I believe in using it in your process and in evaluating your writing process and your learning process, not in the actual writing that you were doing, at least not at first. So let me sort of explain how that plays out. Let's suppose you're getting started writing and you don't really know how to start. Most writers might just plunge on in. I mean, some people do it like Stephen King style. You know how in his book, Stephen King's book on writing, he talks about how you have to write 2,000 words a day or else you're not a real writer and yada, yada. And I remember reading that and trying to do 2,000 words a day and I fell flat on my face. It was horrible. I literally thought I was going to give up because I couldn't do it. I'm not someone who writes, you know, 2,000 words consistently every day. I can't do it that way. So what I realized was I needed a way to evaluate my process and see how I could find ways to maximize my productivity. So this is where iteration comes in. Let's suppose I can write 200 words a day without even breaking a sweat. Well, then I'm going to start out by writing 200 words a day and shooting for that goal, or maybe shooting for a little more than that goal. I always like to add 10% to kind of make it a little bit of a challenge. So let's mm -hmm. say I'm shooting for 220 words a day. And then I do that for several days in a row. And I keep track of the various external variables, like Am I writing in the morning or in the afternoon? I like to test one variable at a time, by the way, and I get very nerdy about this because like, I have a whole science background and I love doing scientific experiments on myself, like on my own guinea pig. But, you know, I'll test things like, all right, let's compare morning versus evening writing. And I will do those 220 words, morning a few days, evening a few days. And then I see how it felt. And I see how efficient I was. I see how long it took for me to get those 220 words. Or maybe on some of those days, maybe in the mornings, I got on a roll and I hit like 350 words. Well, that's interesting information to note. So I keep track of what I'm doing and I sort of log those words and that time so that I can then see my writing patterns and I can then start to think, all right, it looks like I'm a morning writer, not an evening writer. So now I'm going to start writing in the morning. And then I test a different variable. All right, is it better to write in the office or at Starbucks? And I'll do that a few different times. So this concept of iteration where you're taking your writing process and you sort of make adjustments as you go, it allows you to sort of adapt your process as your life is changing. So for instance, 
in the beginning when I was doing DIY MFA and I only had, and my kids were really, really young, I couldn't do any work at home in my office. It was impossible because I had a baby in the house and I had a toddler son. So I'd have to go out to do my writing. I could do office work like computer and social media, but I couldn't do writing that required focused concentration. So that was how I wrote the DIY MFA book. Now that my kids are in preschool and in kindergarten, that's a whole different ball of wax. I'll probably be able to write my next book from my very own office computer because I will not have those distractions in the house preventing me from doing it. So I can make adjustments to my process as it goes. And that's sort of the key concept behind iteration that you can, you sort of learn how you operate best and then you sort of fine tune that so you can make it better. So another principle that jumped out at me from the DIY MFA mindset was resistance is your compass. What do you mean by that? It, it, so it, it's important when, at the beginning of discussing resistance to draw a distinction between resistance and the wall. The wall or writer's block or creative block or whatever, I think that's bull honky and it doesn't exist. Um, resistance is very, very real. The difference between them is that when we think of like the wall or blocks of some sort, it's like we're imagining that there's something keeping us from doing the creative thing we want to do. And that's totally ridiculous. We all know that we are masters of our own fate. And we can, unless someone is literally putting you in handcuffs, keeping you from writing your book, you do not have a block. Like you can sit down and write your book. So the block is really in your head. It's not something outside of you that's keeping you from doing the work. And I often liken this to, you know, when you're first dating someone that you really like and they say, oh, let's go out to dinner. And like in any other situation, you probably would have had other things to do, but you find a way if you really like that person and you want to go to dinner with them, you want to go on that date, you find a way to make it happen. And you don't put it off. You don't say, oh, well, I have this thing or, oh, I have to go and get my hair shampooed. I mean, that's what you say if you don't want to go on the date. So it's the same thing with writing or with creativity. Like if you really want to do it, you will find a way. And I've had people come to me and say, but Gabriella, that's so unfair for you to say that, to blame us for not being creative enough. That like you're you're kind of throwing the blame at us. That's so unfair. And you know, what if we have a an illness that keeps us from being blocked? Well, you know what? There are writers in the DIY MFA community who have failing sight and still find a way to write. There are writers in the DIY MFA community who have severe chronic illness and they still find ways to write. I tackle like really serious mental health stuff. And I find a way to write. So like if other people are able to do it, then think of it as a, like a liberation. Like you are free to write. Resistance is a different beast. Resistance is the fear that keeps us from doing the thing that's really scary to do, but we need to do it anyway. And there's a key distinction here. Although both blocks and resistance are essentially in our minds, the way you tackle them is going to be different. The way I think the most effective way I think of tackling blocks is to simply ignore them and do it anyway. Because that's the only, like if you give credence to the wall, if you give credence to the block, then you're basically giving it power. And the only way to take away that power is to just do the creative thing you want to do. Resistance is a little bit more difficult because in this case, there is a legitimate fear behind the reason why you don't want to do this creative thing. So like resistance might come from feeling too close to the subject matter. And so you're afraid to tackle it because it's going to bring back really difficult memories or really difficult uh, emotional stuff. Um, resistance might come from wanting to tackle this subject matter, but you want to do it the right way. And so you're feeling this fear of like, what if I do it wrong? What if I don't give this thing that I'm trying to tackle credit, enough uh, credit? And this is where the idea of resistance being your compass is so important. Because once upon a time, back when, you know, we were living in caves, like we as humans were living in caves, fear also existed, but it existed for a very pragmatic reason, right? Like it was the whole flight or fight or flight 
thing. You know, the reason we felt fear was so we wouldn't get eaten by predators or so that we wouldn't eat the poisonous red berries that will kill us. Like, that's why we felt fear. Nowadays, the same threats that were around back in prehistoric era era are not as big of a problem. So the fear gets channeled into something else. It gets channeled into our creative drive or into the things that we want to attain, but we're afraid that we might fail. Or perhaps on the flip side, we're afraid we might actually succeed. So I think of resistance as looking at the you know, looking at the thing that we're resisting and seeing that as a compass, the same way fear back in prehistoric era was a way of telling people, pay attention, wake up, there's a danger here, there's something scary. That's still what the resistance is doing now. The difference is instead of going, wake up, writer, this is juicy and, you know, this is scary and making us run away. We want to run into it. We want to go toward it and use that resistance as a compass pointing us to exactly the thing we need to do. And obviously, if we're talking resistance, then we should acknowledge Mr. Stephen Pressfield with his book, The War of Art. So if anyone's not familiar with that, then it's a really great book where Steve talks about resistance with a capital R as being the invisible force that rises up to stop us doing what we've set our heart on achieving really dovetailing nicely with what you've said there is where Steve says if a friend comes to him and says well I'm thinking of writing I've got three ideas for a book which one should I do and Steve said well it's easy you should do the one that scares you the most absolutely and the other thing I want to add is that this isn't to say that we should ignore the fear it's not about dismissing the fear In fact, we need to honor the fear. We need to acknowledge that it's there and that the reason this thing scares us is because it matters, because it's important, because the stakes are higher. And that's why we need to run toward it instead of run away from it, because that's where the juicy material is. Moving on from mindset, in the DIY MFA, you you talk about the, the three pillars. You have write with focus, read with purpose, and build your community. Could you talk a bit about what those mean, firstly for writers and then also for other creatives? Because, you know, I know you've been expanding this beyond those of us who are writers. Absolutely. So um, so write with focus, read with purpose, and build your community. First, before I even tackle what those things are, I want to sort of give a little bit of context for how I came up with those three pillars, because it wasn't all nice and neat into three little pillars when I first started. Iteration played a part in that whole thing. So when I first began, I thought that MFAs involved the craft of writing, the creativity, motivation, uh, reading like a writer, publishing, marketing, workshops. I literally had like 12 pillars. It was insane. And I realized very quickly that that was going to be difficult for people to keep straight in their heads. And as I started looking at how the pillars broke down or how those different topics broke down, I noticed that they tended to group together. They tended to group into writing or sort of creative output, reading, creative input, and then community, the creative exchange of ideas. And the the other thing too is that as I developed these pillars, Those original topics, like the 12 or however many I had, they all came from looking at actual MFA programs and seeing not just the one that I experienced and that I was a student at, but also seeing what other programs had in their curriculum. And that's fairly easy to do when you go on the websites and you see what they say in terms of like the required courses and all the other things you need to do if you decide to go there. So I was able to glean from a lot of different MFA programs, sort of what ground they covered. And then I also added some things that I saw that were missing, particularly the side of publishing and marketing and more the business aspect of writing that unfortunately tends to be missing from many, many writing programs. So all of these things kind of got lumped together and then I grouped them into three pillars. And the Write with Focus pillar is all about writing, obviously, the creative output, but it's about doing it with focus, doing it. It's not just writing willy-nilly without a plan. It's about having a 
purposeful approach, an intentional approach to your writing. And this isn't to say that in the beginning, you don't want to dabble and try out a lot of different things. When I first started writing, I kept a journal and I did a lot of different projects and I was constantly trying out different ideas. That's important. That exploratory ground covering that you do early on in your writing experience or your creative life, you have to do that so you find out what you like and what you're good at and what you're most interested in. But eventually you need to zero in. And I think that a lot of writers stay in that kind of let me try everything and dabble in a little bit of everything stage way too long. And they don't zero in on actually the area of writing they want to focus on. And I think that it does you a lot more service to zero in on something, even if you decide to change your mind later, to learn that craft of that particular type of writing really, really well, because then what you learn for that particular niche will translate to other types of writing. So I find that it's really useful to learn the fundamentals of the craft and to really apply it to your writing. I often find myself like reading books on the craft of writing and then doing exercises and sitting down and seeing, okay, how can I apply this concept to the book I'm writing or to this short story I want to write or to this nonfiction article I want to publish? And really applying, like kind of rolling up your sleeves and digging in and doing the work. That's how you learn. So that's the writing with focus piece of the puzzle. Writing with focus also means building up your sort of resilience and your motivation, learning how to, you know, iterating so you can figure out your process. Um, And a lot of your books, Mark, have been great resources for me and also ones that I uh, refer my students to because I think they're so great at helping writers kind of get motivated and lay down that foundational motivation piece. And then, you know, you also have the creativity part of it. And a lot of people think creativity is this like mystical, mysterious thing that, you know, you kind of have it or you don't. And like, who knows how you might acquire it if you don't have it. Like it's some sort of like ethereal thing that no one knows how to wrap their heads around it. I personally think of creativity as very scientific. I think ideas are like buses and subways in New York City. There's always another one coming right down the road or right down the tracks. And I think that like you need to get yourself in a mindset where you're not treating creativity as something precious. And instead, it's just a run-of-the-mill, regular part of your life, and you're going to tap into it on a daily basis, and that's that, and kind of demystifying it in that way. In terms of the reading with purpose, this is a really important piece because it's, again, about being very intentional in your reading. So this reading in this case is idea, uh, creative input. And in terms of uh, the DIY MFA approach, what I wanted to do was give people a chance to be their own professor. So if you go to an MFA program, you probably you end up taking a literature class or two or three or however many, and the professor hands you the syllabus on the first day and they say, all right, these are the books you're going to read this semester, and then you have to read them. And if they happen to be books that you're interested in, great. And if they're not, well, that stinks, and you still have to read them anyway, and you probably have to write a lot of boring papers on those books too. I do not believe in exercises in futility. I think that at DIY MFA, writers should be their own professors and give themselves assignments that are productive and useful. So this means choosing books that are relevant to what you want to write, reading books that are going to supplement what you're trying to learn so that you can actually grow as a writer and having that approach to reading that really serves your goals and isn't just about reading a book because you feel like you should have read it back in high school or something. And then with building your community, it's all about building your community. And I see that as actually breaking down into three types of community. The community with fellow creatives, fellow writers. Community with the people who will receive your work, so your audience or your readers in the case of writing. And then communities with those in the business that you want to operate in. So in the case of writing, that has to do with community with publishers and the publishing industry and understanding how to market your work. When it comes to expanding beyond the writing piece, you probably already have a sense of just from listening to what I said about what that would look like for other creatives. But in terms of, you know, creativity, the 
write with focus piece could very easily become any type of creative output. If you're a photographer, that's taking photographs. If you're a chef, that's cooking meals. If you're a painter, that's painting paintings. If you're a musician, that's either composing music or performing music and your interpretation being the creative output in terms of that, um, that field. In terms of reading, it's receiving the creative input. So whether it's looking at other artists' work or sampling foods by other chefs or listening to music that was performed and produced by other musicians. And then, of course, in the community, it's, again, building community with the fellow colleagues in your creative field, other creators who are like you trying to navigate this world, forming community or connections with your audience, the people who will be receiving your creative work. That's a different type of community and a different type of connection than you might forge with your colleagues. And then, of course, also knowing how to navigate the business side of it. So it really does expand to other creative fields um, beyond writing. But for the purposes of DIY MFA, we call it write with focus, read with purpose, and build your community. Great. And I love the way you've got I mean, because it's a well-rounded approach. You, it's not just about the art, but it's also equally, it's not just about all the stuff that's peripheral. And one of the tools I really like in the book is the DIY MFA pie, because, you know, there's all these thing, different things that we have to do, whether we're a writer or an artist or a creator. And I hear this a lot from clients and other creatives I talk to, they say, well, you know, these days I'm supposed to be networking, I'm supposed to be marketing, I'm supposed to be on social media, I'm supposed to be doing this, that and the other, but where does my writing fit in? And you actually, the the pie that you use actually gives quite a specific, concrete answer to that. So maybe you could explain it. Sure. So the DIY MFA pie is basically you take all the time you have available for your art or your work or your writing or whatever, your creative work. And then that time, you are going to divide it into three segments, three slices, like it's a pie. So you draw a circle and then you create three slices. Now you could make those slices exactly the same size and cut the, the pie into thirds. I personally tend to put the pie when I'm in sort of my default, I tend to make my pie half creative output. And then the other half of the pie, I divide into quarters and have that be creative input and community. The reason I do this, and this is my default, is because I find that the writing is what takes the most time and that's the stuff I really need to be doing the most of. So when I'm operating sort of any random day of the week, that's what my pie will look like. And I try to stick pretty much to that. I try to do half of my creative time being creative output and then the other half of that time divided evenly between community building and reading, creative input. Now, this pie is a fluid thing. It doesn't stay stuck in that mode all the time. For example, last weekend I was at a conference. During that time, my pie was about 75 or 80 percent community. And the other little sliver of the pie was cut in half to and was divided between the writing and the reading. The key, the only two rules, is that you have to have all three t things represented in your pie. So you should never drop something from your pie. Be even if it, all you do is read a sentence or write a phrase, you still want to have your hand in the game in all three things all the time. Because the minute you drop something from your pie, it is so much harder to build it back into your pie again later. And then the other rule too is that you are not allowed to flog yourself for the way your pie looks. Like one of the things that I absolutely, it drives me crazy with um, when I see writers doing this, and I, admittedly I do this a lot myself, is we often punish ourselves for not doing it right. You know, like, oh, I only wrote 200 words today, flog, flog bad writer, bad writer. And it's just, that is so counterproductive. <laughs> I call this compounding failure with guilt. Like if you happen, it's like if you do drop a slice from your pie one day, okay, no biggie. Don't flog yourself. Put it back in the pie and get back on the horse. You're done. Like it's not a big, it's not a big deal. And when we make a big deal out of these failures, complaining about it, flogging ourselves, angsting ourselves into a tizzy is not going to solve the problem. It is only going to compound that failure or that misstep into something worse. So the best way to solve it is to just acknowledge it and move on. 
great. And I love the idea of switching, having different pies or different types of pie for different modes. I mean, you know, you've got conference, you've got writing, you could say a book launch. In that period, you've got to be much more out there and focused on on marketing and, and getting your, your book into people's hands. But it doesn't mean that that's all you do as a writer. Absolutely. And the other thing I want to mention, too, is that because I tend to do DIY MFA, like it's my full-time job, so my pie is probably going to be several hours a day of my time. Like a lot, a big chunk of my time is my pie. Your pie might only be 45 minutes long, and that's fine. That is totally okay. The pie is not, this isn't a judgment thing. This isn't a thing where we're going to say, oh my gosh, my pie is bigger than your pie and da 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 and I spend all this time. It's just taking the time that you have and dividing it so that you address all the important parts, that you feed all the parts of your writing or your creative soul. That's the purpose of the pie. And guess what? When you get to be a full-time creative and you're getting paid to be creative all the time, then your pie can be really, really big and it's awesome. Well, here's to large pies for all of us. (laughs) Yes. So, all right. Let's round this off with the part of the show where I invite my guests to set a challenge to the audience, a creative challenge, uh, because I know you've got one that's that's very much on theme uh, for us today. So what is your challenge, Gabriella? All right. So my challenge for you is I'd like you to set up your own DIY MFA. So that means you want to tap into all three pillars of the DIY MFA. Now, I have a few specific exercises that can help you with each of those pillars. With your writing pillar, I'd like you to track what you are doing as a writer. So keep a log of what you're doing. In this case, you know, keep a log of how many words you're writing at a time or how many, you know, if you're doing this in a different creative field, like how many photos you're taking or some measure of what you are doing. And keep a log of that over a couple of weeks and see how you operate in your natural environment as a creative person. For the reading component, the creative input, I'd like you to intentionally put together a reading list If you are doing this in another area outside of writing, you'll want to be intentional about how you select the things that you are going to pull into your creative input. In the case of writing, this is really easy because you basically just get to write a list of books that you want to read. But as you're thinking about the books to put on that list, think about the purpose they serve. Are these books classics that really draw, you know, from books that have had staying power? Or are these contemporary books that are telling you what's on the market right now? Are these books that could be competitors to your book? Or are these books that might complement what you're writing and put it into context? These are all things you want to consider as you're assembling that reading list. And then in terms of your creative community, I'd love you to come up with what I like to call the circle of trust. The circle of trust is comprised of four things. And some people in your writing community will probably be in more than one of these categories, but very rarely will you have one person who fills all four categories at one time. But the four categories are people who can critique and offer feedback, people who can give you some accountability, people who can keep you on task. The third is people who might support you. These don't necessarily have to be fellow creatives. These could be people in your family and in your life who are helping to support you and motivate you through this process. And then finally, the last uh, category is people who might offer you advice. So my challenge for you is to put together a log of your creative output, a I guess, reading list or input list for your creative input, and then a representation of your creative community. Put those names on a piece of paper and keep it somewhere where you can see it because that will help you stay grounded. Now, if you'd like an additional thing to help you sort of stay organized with this process, I would love to invite you to hop over and get the DIY MFA Starter Kit, which basically walks you through and gives you resources to do each of these three tasks. So to get that, you can hop over to DIYMFA.com backslash join, J-O-I-N, and sign up with your email to get the downloads, and that will help walk you through. But you can also do this on your own without the Starter Kit as well. 
Thank you, Gabriella. That's great. And, you know, I would really encourage you, if you're interested in this idea, because what Gabriella's given you is basically an MFA in about three minutes. I would say get a pen and paper, go back, listen to those three minutes over and again, because these are three absolutely critical pillars for your creative career, whether you're a writer or another kind of creative. Um, and, you know, Gabrielle, one thing I really love about the whole spirit of what you've been talking about today and what you promote on your site and your course and your books is this whole sense of empowerment for creatives, which, as you know, has been one of the big themes of this podcast. But a lot of the time we talk about empowerment in terms of production and publishing and being able to get our work out there and earn money from it directly and, and so on. But what you're doing is you're saying, actually, this applies to our education as creatives as well. It's important for us to take it into our own hands and take, you know, whatever channel, formal channel or otherwise we go through, it's about taking responsibility for your own learning. And, you know, this is a fast-moving century. That So if you want to succeed as a 21st century creative, then take responsibility for your own learning is one of the absolute fundamentals. I completely agree, Mark. I think that is so, so true. Thank you, Gabriella. As always, it's been fascinating talking to you. I'm glad we could share the conversation this time. Where can people go to find you and the DIY MFA online? Well, they can certainly find it at DIYMFA.com. And they can also find me via my podcast, which is called DIY MFA Radio. And you can find it on iTunes and all sorts of podcast places. Highly recommend the podcast as well. So thanks again, Gabriella, and all the best with the course. Thank you. You have been listening to The 21st Century Creative, hosted by me, Mark McGuinness. You can find the notes for today's show with more information about my guest and links to the sites we mentioned, as well as all the archived episodes at 21stcenturycreative.fm. If you enjoyed the show, then I hope you'll subscribe in iTunes, and I'm always grateful for your reviews, and also for sharing the show with your friends and followers. If you'd like to have the 21st Century Creative Foundation course delivered to you for free, giving you 26 lessons of advice and worksheets on carving out an original creative career, you can sign up at 21stcenturycreative.fm slash free course. And if you are an experienced creative interested in getting my help as a private coaching client, you can learn about how I help my clients at 21stcenturycreative.fm slash coaching. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll join me again soon. Mm-hmm.